Well, it's been some time since I've had the privilege of occupying this pulpit, and it is good to be back here again to see all of you, to greet you, and to bring you God's Word as a a fairly near neighbor a few blocks away, and I'm particularly privileged to be after the uh, reception at Presbytery of this church and of Pastor Svensson, the first OP uh, minister to speak in your pulpit. So it is, it's good to be with you today on a number of accounts. Turn, if you would, as we say, to page, I believe it is 1187 in the Pew Bible. Yes, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's 1187. We're going to read the first four verses of Hebrews 1. This is God's holy and infallible Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we wait upon you now in this sweet hour of prayer. We wait upon your Holy Spirit who gave this word. Illumine, we pray, our hearts to receive and believe it for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the glories of God's Word, and we think today of Christ as the final Word, one of the glories of God's Word, as Rick Phillips notes, is the way God takes a particular situation involving a particular group of people and uses it with the greatest of relevance to people of all kinds in all times and in all places. The book of Hebrews provides a great example of this principle. This book, one of the greatest in the Bible, was written by an unknown apostolic leader to a group of Jewish Christians In the mid-first century, the words of this book speak to Christians everywhere about standing firm in Christ. Standing firm in Jesus Christ is anything more relevant and necessary for us. We face, as never before in this country and in many respects the history of the world, opposition on every hand, a certain sort of opposition. 
And in this letter, or perhaps better, in this sermon, and more than a few have argued that the book of Hebrews is a well-integrated exhortation, in this sermon God tells us why we must press on and how we must do it because of the all-surpassing supremacy of Christ. Through faith in Him, as those who have gone before had, this book then centers on the person and work of Christ, especially His priestly work, and sets before us as no other covenant theology. We've heard covenant mentioned several times already in worship. And the word for covenant is used far more in this book than anywhere else. And so this is a very significant book for any number of reasons. You might be interested, if you don't know, that John Owen, the great Puritan, wrote in the original seven volumes on the book of Hebrews... And he wrote seven volumes because he saw in it all truth drawn together and exposited in its supreme revelation, Jesus Christ. So he used this, if you will, as a lens through which he might view all Christian truth. The theme of the book, we might say, is what has come before us, what has come before Christ is better, uh, what has come in Christ, excuse me, what has come in Christ is better than all that has come before. And all that came before pointed to the time of fulfillment in Christ. Specifically in these verses, 1 to 4, and we're just really looking at 2 today, we'll see how that God has spoken definitively in our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we see these two things. First of all, God spoke partially and provisionally earlier in what we would call the Old Testament. And secondly, God has spoken now finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the grand opening words of Hebrews, like those of the prologue to John's gospel... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These words lay before us a vast panorama in this assertion that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, which is to say that in the millennia before Christ came, God spoke to His people Partially, which is simply to say, he didn't speak completely. He spoke truly. He spoke with no, no sort of equivocation. But it was partial. Revelation isn't complete until the new covenant, until Christ comes and there is that grand explanation of him in the new covenant. And also provisionally, which means it was for that time. There were things that were for then, the sacrificial system, that are not for now. 
So we say the covenant, uh, the covenant revelation of God of old was partial and provisional, only coming to completion in the incarnation of our Lord. How then, we could say, did God speak of old? How did He speak of old? Uh, what did He do long ago when He spoke to our fathers? Well, two things the text points out to us. He spoke long ago to our fathers, first of all, at many times, and secondly, in many ways. Now, before detailing those many times, I I want to pause to acknowledge uh, again (laughs) that this first verse is rather epic-sounding, isn't it? There are a few verses like this in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God's Word begins with that. And then, of course, there's what I said earlier from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. So when you come to this verse, you you have a sense of that same sort of epic sound. And I say this reverently in literature... Uh, We can think of an opening like the tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And we have the sense of being in the presence of something rather grand. Even in the cinema, Star Wars begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The point being is they're trying, the, the movie makers are trying to really grip you to say, we're saying something very, very important. Of course, none of that... Dickens or movies or anywhere in the sphere of God's Word. This is of supreme importance. So when you read, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. You know you are in the presence of true greatness. Well, how did He speak? We say, or better, when did He speak? He spoke at many times, particularly at creation and in redemption. At creation, God spoke the worlds into existence, right? He spoke the worlds into existence. And we see immediately the creative power of the Word because John 1.1 says, the Word was in the beginning. It says, in fact, that there was nothing made that was not made by the Word. So there was our Lord Jesus Christ and also the Spirit of God very closely connected to Him because the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the word for wind or breath. And breath is what one expends when one is speaking a word. Word is the product of breath. So there's a very close connection between Jesus, the living word who was there in the beginning, and the Holy Spirit, the breath as it were, the wind as it were, this being who brings all of this word into being. A very close connection between the living Word and what will become the written Word. All there at creation. But we say in redemption as well, which is really the rest of the story, at particular key times following creation, throughout what we can call the history of redemption. Note that our text says, at many times, not at all times... Many people have a misconception that 
God's people of old in the Old Testament were perpetually being talked to either by Moses or prophets or kings. No, in fact, if you study the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that God's speaking occurs in conjunction with particular events. Theologians put it this way, that the great redemptive acts or redemptive deeds of God are accompanied by revelatory words. In other words, God does something and He explains what it is that He's done. Frequently, He tells beforehand what He's going to do, then He does it, then He tells us what it meant. But it isn't the case that in those thousands of years that God was always and perpetually speaking to the people, like there was this constant sort of conversation going on. No, God was always rather reserved, you might say, in that declaratory word. But He did speak, and that's associated, you can think of His speaking in the association in terms of the time of the antediluvian history before the flood, the calling of Abraham and his sons, These are great redemptive acts in the Old Testament. Moses and the Exodus, the time of the judges, the establishment of the kingship, the exile and return, and the coming of Messiah. As we say, all of this was predicted beforehand and explained afterwards. This is what is meant uh, that the prophets of old spoke the word of the Lord, those that proclaim the word. That's what a prophet is, one who proclaims the word of the Lord, that they spoke at many times. And you should note that the silence that came to prevail in the time between Malachi and the coming of Christ, the so-called 400 silent years, some speak of it as, That is even more significant that there was not prophecy during that time because there were no great redemptive events occurring during that time. There was no exodus. There was no exile. All of this had come down to waiting. You might say an almost painful waiting for Messiah to come. Well, so God spoke in... um, in many times, at many times, and then he also spoke in many ways. There were various modes of revelation in times past. God spoke to some in dreams, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel. Some he spoke to in visions, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah. Some, like Samuel, he spoke with an audible voice, or Moses at a burning bush the angel of the Lord, and other theophanies like the three men who appeared to Abraham. You get the idea. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament and you'll see the different ways in which God communicated to His people. So we could say that's the how of God speaking. That's what we've been talking about. How did He speak? At many times and in many ways. Let me just pause here to say... The the import of this, if you ponder it, is quite striking in our time. There is a God, many people deny that these days, and He has actually spoken to us. Many more deny that. Yes, many, many wrote this 
Holy Bible by the power of the Spirit. But it's all God through the prophets speaking to us. In this time of uncertainty, here's certainty. In a time where people tell you, oh, what does language mean? How can we know anything? God has spoken. Here is the foundation of your certainty. He spoke of old, many times, many ways. We may deny this revelation and refuse to hear it, as many in our day do, and insist that we join them. No. God has spoken. Let us receive and believe this divine testimony. Well, what of the why? We've been speaking of the how. Why did God choose to speak in this way? You might say, why did He choose to speak in this way? That's a curious question. Well, think of this. Why, in other words, did God reveal as He did in a progressive unfolding of redemptive history? Why not bring about redemption? Why not send Christ immediately or soon after the fall? Why didn't Christ come two or three weeks later after Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Or a few months later? I mean, have you thought about that? You might say, well, there's no reason. Well, that's not true of anything that God does. He's not irrational. There's always a very good reason why Christ waited so long, why it was so long before He came to put everything to rights and to restore things in righteousness. Well, the first answer you could say is why did God do it as He did is because He chose to do it that way. That's not wrong. God is God and He's under no obligation to reveal Himself in any particular way. And a lot of people will criticize the Bible, various kinds of critics, and say, well, I can't, I can't accept that as the Word of God, you know, sort of with the implication, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it this way. Well, you're not God. Thank you very much. There's not an election. God is God. And this is the way He has chosen to reveal Himself and chose to speak. Not instantly... And not even fully. You might say, doesn't this give us everything we need? It absolutely gives us everything we need. Until the new heavens and earth. And we're going to learn a lot more in the new heavens and the new earth. But for now, we have what we need. But we could also say this. There's more to the right answer. Why did God do it this way? Than just what I said. We can truly see the sweet reasonableness of God's way, even in the mysteriousness of His ways. God who made us in His image, even before the fall, knows our creatureliness and thus our inability as finite to comprehend, to wrap our minds around Him who is infinite. Yes, we can truly know God and love God, but we cannot comprehend Him as only He can comprehend Himself, as only He can know Himself. In other words, we don't know God as He knows Himself. He's an infinite being who knows Himself as an infinite being. We're finite beings who know that infinite being by God's revelation. So God reveals Himself to us in a way that we as creatures and even as sinful creatures whose minds are affected by sin can truly know Him, never exhaustively, to put it as Calvin does, 
God accommodates himself to us. God accommodates himself to us in the word. He speaks to us as it were baby talk. And that's what the Bible is. In a certain sense, it's, it's as if God is speaking to us of such limited minds and capacities with baby talk. It's true. Every syllable is true. But particularly the old is partial and incomplete. It's suited to our situation. It's suited to our pre-glorified situation, which means there's still a degree of incompleteness about what we will ultimately know. And of course, for Israel of old, Paul said that the law, the old covenant was a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor to lead them to Christ. It wasn't an end in itself. Now that was the great problem. Many thought that it was, but it wasn't. It was to lead them to Christ. Think of it this way. If a child asks you how a plane flies if you can explain it, you don't discuss aerodynamics in the same way with a four-year-old as you would a 15-year-old. You talk to the four-year-old in the way they understand what you're saying. And as somebody is older, you give them a fuller explanation. And God has given us this explanation fit for all sorts so that we might know Him. You see, think of it this way. We needed the revelation of God in bits and pieces because we said earlier, declaratory word accompanies redemptive deed. In other words, God had all these things He intended to do. We talked about this. The calling of Abraham, the kingship of David, right? The exile, the exodus. We talked about this. And God was going to do all this among His people and they needed explanation. Just think of this. Think how long... It took Israel to learn the lesson of monotheism and to hate idolatry. Or how long it took New Testament Jews who came to trust Christ to learn that the old economy had passed. Or the church, the church that occurs after Pentecost, the church that occurs in what we call church history. How long did it take the church to learn justification by faith alone? You see, we get a partial and provisional yet true word for many centuries because the final word had not yet come. And this is beautifully set forth for you in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, which is on the covenant. Uh, Chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession is on the covenant uh, and it says this. It talks about the covenant of grace in Section 5 of chapter 7 says, This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. That's what Hebrews is talking about, this covenant of grace. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. It was partial and provisional all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. Yes, they looked to Messiah. Everybody who's been saved, who's ever been saved, was saved by grace, by looking to Christ, all this of old. But don't let 
don't sweep under the rug the historical development and act as if none of it really mattered. It matters greatly that Christ must actually come and must actually do what he did. History matters. Don't collapse everything into the decrees. That's a reformed temptation which you must always resist. Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't do that. No, to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And it's called the Old Testament. And then it goes on to say, under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, it goes on to talk about the glory of the new. You see, Christ would not come and do what he did, living and dying for us, until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles had come. Why? For a number of reasons, but particularly to demonstrate through all of Israel's repeated failures how much we need Christ. It was the office, Ray Dillard at Westminster Seminary used to say, it was the office of the Old Testament to fail so that the glory of Christ as the Redeemer would be that much more manifest. This is true in your life, isn't it? The brilliant diamond of God's love and grace is never so evident as it is against the dark felt background of your sin. Similarly, Jesus came when it was so undeniably evident that he was so desperately needed. And when he comes, we see this at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, the law and representing the law and the prophets, give way and they see no man save Jesus only. And so this brings us to this last point that God has spoken finally in and by Christ through whom he made the world. God has now spoken finally in and by Christ in these last days. God has spoken to us. He's spoken to us previously to our fathers in a partial and provisional way, but now to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Last days, we should all be clear here, right? Last days means, as it does in all the New Testament, the time in which we live, the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. So if somebody asks you, are we in the last days? The answer is yes, not because you know, oh, I know Jesus is coming in two years, five years, none of that nonsense. All of the giving, the setting of times is nonsense. It's not even permitted. Don't ever go down that path. I speak as a historian. You know how many, how many times people have said it's all over throughout history? I can't even begin to say. We're in the last days because Jesus has gone back to heaven and we're waiting for him to come again. These are the last days. The word so long hoped for, the word so long hoped for has appeared. He has appeared. And we experience now something that our fathers of old could only long for in the coming of Christ by whose dying, by whose Life and death by his active obedience and his passive obedience were saved. And who gathers and perfects by his spirit a church composed not of ethnic Israelites only, 
but of those from every tribe, kindred, tongue, nation, and people. So this once, as we say, so long hoped for has come. And he's the heir of all things. That's what the text says. As God's only son, as the firstborn inheritor, right? He is the heir of all things. There is much his now in principle as they will be at the consummation when he comes. You see, the father has appointed his son the heir of all things. This doesn't mean... Right? That the father has died and left everything to the son as we think of when somebody inherits. Rather, it means that Jesus, though eternally the only begotten son, as to his descent from David according to the flesh, Romans 1, 3 and 4, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In particular, in his resurrection... It's in His resurrection that the Father says to and of His eternal Son, Psalm 2, 7 and 8, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, when we sang that moments ago, your possession. As Hughes notes, His inheritance is the immeasurable company of the of the redeemed, and the universe renewed by His triumphant work of reconciliation. Thus, that Jesus is the heir of all things means that He receives the nations, even the ends of the earth, as His. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. The maestro is getting excited here, I can tell. But a little, a little announcement, right, of coming attractions. That's, but we, that's why we love Messiah so much, for so many reasons. But it proclaims Him, the Word. We are His inheritance, in other words, the ends of the earth... We are His inheritance so that He has all things, every square inch, as Kuiper said. And we have all things in Him. Since Think of it this way. Since He, God the Father, has freely given us His Son, how will He not in Him and with Him freely give us all things? Jesus, to, let me put it this way. Jesus inherits all and we inherit all in Him. So the Lord who spoke in and through the Son made the world through Him. He's the inheritor of all things and the world's all that was made was made. We've already seen and thought a a moment about that from the prologue to John's Gospel. So we can say Jesus is the arcade, the beginning. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Identity, uh, or rather... um, uh, a, a, a matter of, of making a distinction. The Word was with God and the Word was God, making an, an identity. But He is also the telos, the last word, the final word, as our text says. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning through whom also He created the world and the end, the one whom God has spoken in these last days 
through God has spoken in these last days as inheritor through whom you receive the inheritance even fully at the end. So we say these opening words of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tell us that Jesus is the climax of all God's revelation. The beginning of such indeed and the end. Even as all revelation began with Him who is the Word from the beginning, it ends with Him who is the final Word. And all in between, it's all about Him. With the partial and the provisional of the old giving way joyfully to the final when the long-expected one comes and fulfills all righteousness. That's particularly the message here for us in Hebrews today. Let us take it to heart. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would be pleased to minister your word to us. And we pray this in the name of him who is the word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.